You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. We have a tremendous special treat for you. Um, as you know, Nick Clegg, who is going to be speaking to us tonight, served as the Deputy Prime Minister in Britain's first post-war coalition government from 2010 to 2015. He was a leader of the Liberal Democrats from 2007 to 2015 and was a member of Parliament for Sheffield Hallam for 12 years. Prior to his entry in British politics, he served as a leading member of the European Parliament on trade and industry affairs and as an international trade negotiator at the European Commission. Uh, importantly, I think for ODI, um, uh, the UK's commitment uh, to spending 0.7 of its GNI on overseas development assistance was enshrined into law during Nick's time as Deputy Prime Minister, um, and it's a subject that he has spoken passionately about. I'm sure it will come up tonight. Um, his latest book is uh, pretty fresh off the presses, uh, How to Stop Brexit and Make Britain Great Again. Um, as an American, I can't help but note that that final phrase um, sends a little bit of a chill down the spine, but I'm sure he'll, he'll talk about what it means um, in this context. Um, so we're enormously excited uh, to have uh, Nick speaking here tonight, and I will invite him to the lectern in a second to open up uh, with a keynote speech. But that speech is going to be followed by a discussion. And that discussion is going to be led and teased out of Nick and out of all of you uh, by Helen Joyce. Uh, Helen is the international uh, section editor at The Economist. Um, and uh, she is going to be moderating the discussion here that follows. Um, Helen has a long career at The Economist, having served previously as the Sao Paulo bureau chief. Um, and during a period of radical transition for print media, uh, worked on the Economist strategy on data, both print and online. Uh, but we're probably not going to be talking about that tonight, um, but maybe uh, in the reception afterward. Um, uh, you will all be asked, uh, after some conversation led by Helen, also to contribute to the conversation. I'm glad that many of you made it here tonight in person. We are also joined by many people online. Um, and so to them, I also want to issue a special welcome and to say that for those of you both in the room and online, if you are following this event, if you want to comment, ask questions, we're using the hashtag ODICLEG. Uh, so please use it. Uh, we did have an event here last week where we trended um, throughout the UK on Twitter, um, and uh, we're very much hoping to meet or beat that tonight. Uh, so please join the conversation either from the audience. You should silence your phones, but not turn them off. And those of you who are watching online, uh, please let us know what you think. So without further ado, it is my great pleasure and honor uh, to welcome Nick Clegg to the podium. Thanks. Thanks. Well, that's, thank you very, very much, and I'm, I'm delighted to uh, be here. Uh, we have, I think, a bit of time together, uh, and it comes in sort of three parts. I'm going to warble for a bit, uh, then Helen and I are going to uh, have a conversation, and then we will open it up to wider discussion. So I think my role at the outset is really just to get the ball rolling and to set the 
wider context in which uh, considerations of development, considerations of Britain's role in the world, and indeed wider geostrategic forces uh, need to be considered. Um, and I'm going to uh, sort of exploit the, the, the privilege of, of speaking at the outset by being incredibly general and sweeping in my opening uh, remarks uh, uh, to allow us all then the, uh, the freedom to uh, drill down in greater detail in specific aspects that you want to explore uh, with greater scrutiny. And I really um, want to step back for a minute um, or fly high, I'm mixing my metaphors hopefully, hopelessly, and look at the world from sort of 30,000 feet, uh, particularly in the, in the perspective of where we are located here in this great city of London, in the United Kingdom, in the state of great uh, economic and political flux that our country finds ourselves in, and of course in the context of uh, the evolution of this wonderful, cluttered, busy, disputatious continent of ours uh, that is uh, Europe. And really uh, underline to you, I think that there are three major forces uh, which we need to uh, consider as we uh, try to peer into the future. Uh, the first one, is the uh, dramatic and very worrying collapse in self-confidence in Western democracy itself. Uh, I think it is impossible to describe quite how uh, steep the decline in self-belief, self-confidence um, that has occurred in what was proverbially called the West, the sort of transatlantic uh, Euro-American uh, community. Now, there are many reasons for that. Um, I remember, many of you I no doubt will remember, I'm not trying to make a general assessment of the average age of the uh, audience, but when people ask me what was the most significant moment in my own personal sort of political development and my own awareness of the world in which I inhabit, it undoubtedly was and remains the collapse of the Berlin Wall in 1989 and the move from a world which was perfectly divided, bifurcated, spit in two between Western capitalism on the one hand and Soviet communism on the, on the other, and all uh, overshadowed by the kind of menace of nuclear apocalypse and nuclear conflict at any moment. And I, I'm sure many of you will remember the unbridled optimism and positivity that abounded as people took, uh, you know, chiselled away at this physical manifestation of that division in, in, in Berlin. I mean, I remember bursting into tears, just being so moved and also so relieved when I heard uh, I was a postgraduate student at the time in, uh, in the Midwest of, of America. My, myself and my flatmate, we didn't have a television. So I remember listening to the, to the radio and hearing this uh, extraordinary account of these events unfold as this uh, great division of the European continent suddenly gave way to the promise of something new and something better and something brighter. And Francis Fukuyama declared that it was the end of history and there was a sort of sense that the good guys had won and liberal democracy, small l, small d, uh, had sort of triumphed completely. No, it'd be nice to think that liberal Democrats had triumphed completely, but that would, <laughs> even in my more partisan moments, I wouldn't claim that. Um, and it's astonishing to, con to consider how the mood has changed from those heady, optimistic, almost naive days when we thought all was possible uh, and progress would be effortless and tomorrow would always be better than today and today would always be, be better than yesterday. We fast forward now to 2017 and we're living in a period of, of uh, in my view, great introspection, populism, division, volatility and uncertainty 
In many ways, I suspect the historians, when they write about this sweep of time from 1989 through till now, and perhaps particularly from 1989 through to the financial crash in 2008, will conclude that we squandered, we squandered this unusual opportunity to actually entrench many of those small L, small D, liberal democratic values that we thought uh, had triumphed in 1989. And there are many reasons for that. Changes in the way in which our domestic economies have operated, changes in the way in which society is organized, the eruption of technology, the advent of globalization. But given that I only gonna speak for a few minutes and we're speaking, as I said, at sort of 30,000 feet, the single biggest catalyst, I think, for this sense of decline and this loss of self-confidence in the West um, is, I think, what happened in 2008. I think it is impossible to exaggerate. It's not the only reason. I don't want to be that reductionist, but um, I think it is impossible to exaggerate how profound the damage has been that 2008 has inflicted on our way of life. In fact, I would go further than that. I would hazard a guess. I can't prove it to you, but no one can disprove it either. Uh, that if 2008 had not, had not happened, I don't think Donald Trump would have been elected as President of the United States. I don't think this country would have voted for Brexit. I don't think the wellspring of legitimate rage and frustration and popular disenfranchisement which has engulfed our society and which has afflicted so many millions of people, particularly on low and middle incomes across the developed world, I just don't think that would have erupted in the, and evolved in the way that it had if the... Uh, if the banking crisis had not imploded as it has in 2008. So that's the first point, is just be aware of the, the collapse in self-confidence in kind of our way of life. Secondly, and of course linked to that, it's not caused by it, but it's linked to it, is the rise of autocracy and the rise in particular of deeply illiberal um, political power uh, in not exclusively, but most notably in China. China is showing, or is seeking to show, that there is a route to socio-economic development which is accompanied by, or perhaps even relies upon, illiberal um, uh, principles of political autocracy, um, uh, repression, uh, and authoritarianism. Um, and that concatenation, that coincidence of a collapse in the self-confidence of the Western model and the rise of uh, an autocratic, authoritarian Chinese model uh, of development uh, is, in my view, the pivot, uh, the seesaw uh, around which so much of uh, our world will be organised for many, many uh, years uh, to come. And then the third major force, which of course is one that Many of you in this audience are far more expert than I am, so I only speak about it very tentatively, is the huge socioeconomic and demographic imbalance between North and South. And that, of course, is acutely felt, though not exclusively uh, felt, but it is acutely felt in uh, the European hemisphere, where we have a, a, a developed continent uh, geographically located adjacent to this vast massive, burgeoning, fast-evolving continent of Africa with all the migratory, demographic and economic pressures attendant to it. And that clearly um, is brought to political attention uh, at a time when um, many, many voters across the European continent 
are alarmed at the real or perceived migratory threat as they see it from, from the south. But it is one that, again, will stay with us for a very long period of time. And so, um, again, just to get the ball rolling, I would suggest that whilst there are many, many other big, big forces that we could talk about, the power of technology, uh, the ageing population in, in the West, the existential crisis of climate change, uh, the rise of religious, uh, ethnic uh, and nationalist extremism in large parts of the world, uh, I would certainly settle on these three forces, the collapse in Western self-confidence, the rise of particularly, not exclusively, uh, Chinese authoritarianism and the, the, the north-south demographic imbalance, particularly between Europe uh, and Africa, as three of the biggest catalysts and forces of, of, of change in our, in our world. I would hazard again, very loftily and very sweepingly, forgive me, um, the following three observations that I think should guide what governments and electorates and the ODI and thinkers and commentators should do uh, in the coming period. Firstly, there is, no, there is no short circuit way, there is no shorthand way, there is no magic wand you can wave to undo the profound damage to, to the fabric of our society that was incurred in 2008. There is only one, there's only one route to recovery, and it's a domestic one. It is the painstaking work, the unglamorous work, the lengthy, time-consuming work, the politically energy-sapping work of rewiring and redesigning the way our economy works, such that prosperity is more fairly distributed, such that we bring to an end this crippling, this crippling uh, period of time, which is still going on today, in which millions and millions of our fellow citizens are working longer hours than they have before, and yet they are, notwithstanding a very short reprieve last year, they have for now eight, nine long years taken less, home, less money home every week and every month and every year, even though they're working harder than ever before. The link, in other words, between the amount of work uh, um, undertaken and the money received, that link has broken. And in my view, as long as that link has broken, uh, it is very, very difficult indeed to reassemble the political and social support and consensus needed for the way in which we run uh, a, uh, an open, uh, mixed, free market uh, economy. And that involves a, a bunch of things. It involves um, redesigning our tax system. It involves redesigning our welfare system. But it also involves, of course, distributing public goods. And I would single out housing. I know it's a Again, a rather cliched thing to observe, but boy, do we talk about this a lot without actually doing very much about it. But the criminal um, failure to uh, make housing available on a generationally equitable basis in this country and many other parts of the West is, in my view, one of the, not the only, but one of the greatest sources for that feeling of disenfranchisement and feeling of frustration, which is quite understandably leading millions and millions of voters to look to populists on right and left for easy answers to their, to their, um, 
to their sense of uh, anger and dismay. So domestic reform, domestic social policy economic reform, it's, it's unglamorous, it's politically often unrewarding, it's painstaking, but it is absolutely essential. Uh, and I think sometimes we all slightly reach for one sort of silver bullet solution, um, as if somehow we can match the populace, match the sort of ludicrous claims from Donald Trump that uh, the Rust Belt will all be made well by just building a wall against the Mexicans, or the absurd allegation from Boris Johnson and, and, and Nigel Farage and all those other Brexit jokers and opportunists that somehow, by pulling out of the European Union, uh, social injustice will be uh, healed uh, in the United Kingdom. It's, it is simply not as, as simple as that. Uh, we are going to have to embark upon a long period of very, very profound, detailed rewiring of our own economic order. Secondly, we need to learn how, and this is certainly not being successfully accomplished by uh, Donald Trump as the leader of the free world right now, we need to learn how to uh, manage and organise our relationship in China, with China in a way that is stable, uh, predictable and avoids the very, very you know, real prospect of conflagrations, as we all know, uh, the pinch points in, in the South China Sea and elsewhere are some of the most alarming pinch points now to the international order. And we need somehow to find a way in which uh, we engage respectfully with China as um, a great world superpower with a great history behind it and a great future ahead of it, but do so in a way which does not um, aid and abet their claim to exporting a new authoritarian model of, of development uh, across the wider world. And third and finally, we need in our own European hemisphere clearly to develop more rather than less collective responses to these huge demographic, migratory, socioeconomic pressures that, that, um, uh, that uh, fall between the North and the South, Europe, uh, and particularly the continent uh, of, of, of Africa. Now, that has many aspects to it. It means that it is essential that the United Kingdom continues to maintain its leading commitment to providing development aid at 0.7% of GDP. It is essential we persuade other European countries to follow suit. And it's equally essential that we continue to organise our efforts collectively at administering that development aid to the greatest effect uh, in, in Africa and indeed elsewhere. It is equally essential that we come up with a more collective response to the disorganised and highly porous uh, external European borders. Um, I have always felt for many, many years that uh, we were bound to encounter a major political crisis as far as the management or mismanagement of European borders were concerned for the simple reason that in a democracy... Uh, in an open democracy where people quite rightly expect that at some level there is some control over who is admitted and who is not admitted into your community, it is simply not possible to do what the EU did, which is to remove internal borders through the creation of Schengen and not introduce external borders. You can do one or the other. You can either remove external borders 
and maintain internal borders, or if you want to remove internal borders, which was a, and is a natural aspiration of the European Union, you can't do that without being more organized in the way in which you administer your external borders. And that was always a fundamental and complacent design flaw that was bound at one point to conflict with uh, public expectations in a mature democracy. And that, of course, uh, erupted in exactly that way in view of the terrible humanitarian crisis in Syria and the, uh, uh, the Mediterranean migration crisis, refugee crisis of 2015 and beyond. Now, some faltering steps have been made by the European Union to be more organized. Some of it is not very edifying. Personally, I think the deal that the European Union entered into with Turkey uh, was uh, pretty uh, uh, sort of threadbare and in the long run is unsustainable, but I could see why they uh, did it. And there has been a patch and mend job to try and restrict the uh, flow of uh, uh, folk coming particularly from, uh, from uh, Libya. But we need a more sustainable solution to that, which has very which has a number of obvious strands to it, all of which ODI has been more expert than almost any other uh, institute in exploring, whether it is the uh, provision of development aid, whether it is uh, managed routes of uh, migration and return, or, or whether it is the sensible, humane, legally sound administration of Europe's external borders. But that remains a huge, huge challenge. So to conclude, I think we, have, we, we inhabit a world which um, is distinguished by uh, great self-doubt in our sort of hemisphere, uh, great and growing self-confidence in uh, particularly uh, China, and great brewing demographic problems between North and South. Uh, we can solve these problems, but we can only do them whether we're if we're prepared to do the hard graft of our own homework in our own societies and addressing the flaws of our own economic shortcomings. If we're prepared to act with maturity, but also with resolve in dealing with the new model of authoritarian um, development uh, espoused by China, and if we're prepared to act collectively within Europe. And needless to say, I think this is about the very worst time from which our great country seeks instead to stare at our own navel for the next several uh, months and years as we seek to extricate ourselves from a, a hugely successful example of supranational governance and collective decision making that is the European Union. And almost regardless of what your views are for Brexit, for Remain, it surely is incontestable that at a time when we face all these great challenges, when we have our work cut out in the way that I have described, it is a criminal waste of energy and effort and time to instead tie ourselves up in, knot, in knots in the way in which the Brexiteers and the current government is seeking to persuade us to do. Thank you very much. It struck me as I was listening to you that, um, in a way, what you're describing is you know, the nemesis after hubris. We thought it was the end of history. We thought yes. that uh, we had you know, solved, there was no more boom and bust, that um, you know, things that had been done, for example, the European Union couldn't be undone, and that things were all in one direction. And that's been shown to not be true. Yeah. And now I think there's, again, at the sort of the broad level that you were talking, there's a choice to be made between 
like many choices because there are many different policies. Do you double down or do you admit that it was too ambitious? And when you admit that it was too ambitious, that kind of gives ammunition to your opponents. And indeed, maybe let's go things that matter a lot, like the 0.7% mm. of GDP. Mm. But if you double down, you're giving ammunition to your opponents because they can say that you were too ambitious, that you this is you're continuing with your hubris, that you haven't listened or whatever. Are there particular policies in which you see that you would like to discuss this playing out? For example, the 0.7% of GDP, which you were quite instrumental in. Mm. Um, so I don't regard doubling down as in the way that you described it as... Um, a, a sort of stubborn, boneheaded insistence of just carrying on regardless and ignoring the great eruptions that are around us. I mean, mm. you could argue that if only we had doubled down in the past, if only um, a lot of the ambitious claims made in, in Western liberal democracies had been fulfilled, uh, then we wouldn't be in the position that we are in now. If, if, if governments, by the way, including mine, of which I was a Deputy Prime Minister, had done half the things we claimed we were going to do on housing, yeah. we wouldn't have this, uh, this situation of near, near intergenerational theft in which all the assets of British society are basically hoarded mm -hmm. by the older generations to, to the cost of the younger generation. If, if, we, um, if, we, if not only the United Kingdom, but if other developed economies had moved to the 0.7% earlier and had pooled their efforts more effectively, then maybe we would have been able to do more earlier to reduce some of the uh, demographic, socioeconomic and migratory pressures felt uh, in, in poorer countries uh, in the world. Um, if regulators and politicians had done half the things they said they were going to in, in properly regulating the financial system, maybe 2008 would not have blown up in our faces as we are. So I, I, um, I think it's terribly important when things go horribly wrong to, to obviously hold up a mirror and be very candid about where things have gone wrong, but not to do, which I think is a bit of the tendency at the moment, is to sort of say, is to sort of try and chase the populace. You know, oh, uh, you know, you can see it in the argument about immigration. Mm. Mainstream politicians everywhere, including this country, they try and chase the populace. They try and chase the anti-immigrant brigade. They sort of say, well, if we kind of, if we kind of strike anti-immigration poses, not of course, not as unreasonably as uh, Nigel Farage, but you know, still send, send the same signal, somehow we'll satisfy that, dis that public discontent. Of course you don't do anything. You don't well, you just, you, le you legitimize, you just legitimize the arguments. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I'm afraid, I'm not of the doubling down variety, but I am of the, I am of the view that, that Western liberal democracy is not a perfect ideology. It is, not a, it is not a creed that is without its flaws. But by golly, it's, a, it's, a, it's an important, um, rational, reasoned, enlightened, progressive creed that I don't think we should simply throw overboard because, because it's now facing such a, you know, such a... Um, a difficult time right now. Uh, uh, I, I, mean, I, so I really worry, actually, that, that, that inverted commas, liberals almost end up doing the populist job for them by kind of somehow conceding to them that they're right. I don't think Trump is right. Farage is not right. They're, can I just say a word about populism, and then I will shut up, because uh, it's a very <laughs> long answer to it, but it's very important. This. People talk about populism, but populism can be a positive thing. Mahatma Gandhi was a populist in one way. You know, populism in the purest dictionary definition is, is the rejection of elites by a public or a mass of people who don't feel 
that they're being properly listened to or attended to. That's fine. The problem with modern populism, and certainly the populisms you see in Europe and North America, is it's actually very dark political art in which people uh, like Farage, Le Pen, Viktor Orban, Gert Wilders, da -da -da, Trump and the rest, they're first very skilled at saying that they somehow feel people's anger more than anybody else. Then, of course, they claim that they uniquely have a sort of umbilical relationship with the folk, with the and they lump everybody together, the people, the people have spoken. And then thirdly, they say, and you can, your, your anger can be sated by blaming it on them. So Trump blames it on the Mexicans, and Farage et al. blame it on Europe, and Viktor Orban blames it on Islam, and Le Pen blames it on immigration, and Gert Wilders blames it on everyone, and the Daily Mail blames it, no doubt, on me. And, you know, and so it... And that's what you have to, you have to reject that. You can't, you can't compromise with that, you have to reject that. So on the specific the thing that you mentioned, I completely agree with you on housing, by the way. I think it's the, the, the single thing, it's yeah. the one thing that... Certainly here. Yeah, in this country. You were in government and you didn't yep. do it. So what was the obstacle? I mean, I presume there were many obstacles, but it's an example of how hard it can be to do what we all know is right. So in very, I mean, without turning yeah, this yeah, into yeah, a seminar details. about housing, yeah, no. uh, um, uh, the mistake we made, um, which was partly a policy mistake and partly an ideological mistake, uh, I remember having lengthy arguments with particularly George Osborne about this, uh, is, is that um, the coalition government and indeed previous Labour and Conservative governments, so all parties are, are culpable of this, were relying on market incentives. They can be planning reforms, tax incentives, bungs, you know, relaxation of red tape, exemption. It was, it was constantly throwing a barrage of incentives at the private sector in the hope that the private sector developers would build at the scale needed. And actually what you're witnessing in the housing market is just a straightforward, vast market failure. The market will never build the number of houses, the 250, 300,000 houses which it is estimated are required simply to bring demand and supply into balance because it has no incentive to do so. Because it would flatten or even reduce average house prices, which then of course removes the market incentive to do so. So I, I just think, I mean, it's, it, I don't know about you, I've, I certainly find it as I get older, so I pompously at the age of 50, but I sort of become a bit more, inverted commas, a bit more small c conservative in some respects and a lot more kind of statist and left-wing in other respects. On housing, I've become radically statist. Yeah. It's just a classic example where it, it's a classic example where you need aggressive state intervention. You need to mobilize the uh, financial muscle of the state uh, and you need, to, you need to overcome everything from local resistance to uh, the financial bottlenecks in order to build, you know, to build house building process. So we, and I won't bore you with it, we did actually try a number of uh, sort of early trials of direct house building uh, by the state during my time in office the first time in many, many, many years. I actually think that needs to be expanded. So uh, the reason I bring housing up specifically isn't just because I agree with you that it's central, it's because it's the only example I can think of of something that can be positive sum. So everything else now has been set up internally in our politics, uh, largely framed around Brexit, has been set up as, you know, you win, I lose, and if I win, you must lose. So everything that we might do to move forward on on Brexit is framed as, you know, we give in to the mm. EU or we defeat the EU. Mm. 
and nobody's going to be happy. So this is the only thing I can think of where we could actually do something that would add to the general well-being of Britons. No, some people will be losers, people who have houses and no children. Is there anything else you can identify that has that, that possibility to increase the cake on the table? And, you know, I'm not trying to use Boris Johnson's cake and eater thing. Um, I just mean to sort of generally give us more to divide. Everything else seems to be so negative. Uh, gosh, that's a big question. Can I just say on the housing thing, you yep. say it's not losers. I mean, um, uh, this is rather tediously going over history. I, I tried to get the government, which I was Deputy Prime Minister, to agree to a very, very radical building of, I think it was 10 garden cities yeah. in this sort of arc between Oxford and Cambridge, where you live. Because there's no point building homes unless you build them in the places where actually people, people want, want to live, live and yeah. where there's work, and where people want to raise families and so on. And it's obvious if you're going to do it on that scale, you can't do it in this hopelessly ad hoc way we do in Britain, where you fill in a few homes here. And a few, you've got to do it in a big planned way. You've got to plan the amenities, you've got to plan the transport connections, and so on. But of course, every single one of those mm. garden cities uh, would, you know, if you followed the, 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 the kind of model of Milton Keynes, say, uh, are in conservative constituencies. Mm -hmm. So of course the Conservatives said, no, not on your Nelly. Mm. So you, there is, I mean, there is a political constraint. Yeah, but anyway. But, but generally speaking, it sort of adds to, you know, yes. the stock of yes. the house, the, the, of the, the nation. The one other big area I can think of is, um, is vocational education. Mm. Further education and and uh, adult reskilling. There's a there's a um, there's a very pernicious um, belief, unspoken or otherwise, in this country that academic qualifications are the only good qualifications. In fact, most, not all, most of the more socially equitable and economically competitive economies in Europe tend tend to be accompanied by much greater equality between vocational and academic uh, education, both at the school system and beyond, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. beyond school. And it's something which has held us back, this kind of slightly inverted snobbery has held, held us back hopelessly. And again, this is not new. People have been talking about this and cogitating about this forever, just like housing. I, I mean, every, every government spews stuff about vocational education revolution. Mm. And there are white papers and green papers and this, that, and the other. So the question is, which is the good one you pose, is why if we kind of know that these are the things that grow the cake in a in a positive sum way rather than a zero sum way, why don't we seem to, to crack it? I think it's partly because a lot of these things only, you can only make a difference over quite a long yes. period of time. So they don't fit with the, with the political cycle. Yes. That's, that's certainly one of the reasons. But they're the things that you have to be, as, as a politician, you have to be a salesman. You have to persuade people, yeah. you know, that you're starting. Yeah, and one surely, and I'm sure there's some, I'm sure there's some Christmas cracker Chinese saying that for every, Crisis. There's a silver lining, or you know what I mean. There's one of the, but the silver lining. It's, it's, the, when I lived in Brazil, what people used to say is, um, "Never let an opportunity, never, never let a crisis go to waste." Except in Argentina, where you never. <laughs> in every crisis, there's an opportunity. But in, in Argentina, they make an opportunity out of every crisis. A crisis. Right, right, right. Well, no, they but, never but, miss an opportunity. But taking the first crisis. bit of that, not the Argentinian yeah. bit of it. Yeah. Um, the, the one, the one thing which I do think uh, political leaders can do now, because I just think we have been so badly injured and so badly shaken by 2008 yeah. and subsequent years is to appeal to uh, a, a kind of a, a, a wider sense that there are short-term choices and sacrifices we need to make. Yes. I mean, dare I say it, look, I was part of a government, and some people criticise for it, anyway, I won't rehearse that, but I was part of a government that said, look, you, you can't ignore the, the, the damage to, you know, the money that a government receives and the money that government you know, to the deficit mm. in the wake of the crisis and we made a political virtue of saying to folk look 
Mm. You can't just ask the next generation to saddle the, the debts of this one. You have to kind of start doing a repair job to it. Then there's a whole great debate about whether we did it too much or too little, or was it... But you managed to make an argument. But you made a big argument. Yes. That's my point. My point is it was a big argument yes. about a big thing which actually involves unpleasant and difficult choices. So it can be done. It mm -hmm. can be done. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that is where the art, it's not a science, that's where the art of, of political leadership lies. And the problem at the moment, there is no political leadership because it's all be, the, the, the whole the oxygen of politics is just being sucked out of British politics completely by this sort of vortex of Brexit. Yeah, I've read the argument. I, I don't find it convincing, but I wonder, do you see anything in it that, you know, we've tossed everything up in the air now, and in a way, it was all so broken that there yeah. might be some benefit to having done that? Well, uh, it, 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 well here's why, one reason why I think that is a... Um, it's a kind of thing that commentators can say mm. um, without actually having to do it. Um, political capital, like all forms of capital, is finite. Mm. There are only so many hours in the day. There's only so much energy. There are only so many arguments you can take take on. There are only so many photo-finished votes that you can countenance in Parliament. There's only so much you can ask of civil servants. The system can only do so much at one time. It isn't an, it isn't an infinitely elastic thing. That's why almost always the best political leaders are those who are ruthless about deciding, here are the two or three things I want to do, and I'm absolutely going to hammer away at that to the exclusion of everything else. And the problem is the whole system is now completely paralysed. By we, we, this, this Brexit thing was supposed to be a bolt to, for freedom. And exactly, it was, about, it was supposed to emancipate us to take back control and do exactly whatever we like. In fact, it's, it, it's crippling the system of government, both in parliamentary terms and also in terms of Whitehall. Are there any um, opportunities that you see? I mean, there are countries outside Europe. This yeah. is a, it is our neighbourhood, but it is also a sort of a fixed ageing place. Um, are, are there opportunities? Are there places that we could do more as Britain than as part of the EU? You could possibly do a little bit more, you know, a little bit more trade with the Americans, a little bit more trade with the Chinese, but the idea that you could do that in a way which, which is as a surrogate or can replace mm. the lost trade as we tear up our membership of, what well, remember, Margaret Thatcher's single market, is an illusion. I, I, I may have got this right, I need to double check it. I think if you double, double the trade that presently exists between the United Kingdom and what's loosely called the Anglosphere, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, India, the United States, who have I missed? I think it's about it. If you just double the trade with you know, which is the which is the great sort of sentimental hankering of Liam yeah. Fox and others, yeah. the English-speaking world, you still wouldn't match the amount of trade we presently have with our nearest neighbours. There's a very good reason for that. See, one of the things that and I, I'm sorry, I'm going to start ranting here, but <laughs> one, one of the things that the Brexiteers have done, and which is so intellectually dishonest, they're pretending to people that geography doesn't matter, yeah. despite all the innovations of technology and all the extraordinary sort of push-button realities of globalization where money can be transferred from one part of the globe to the other. Good old-fashioned geography, who are your neighbors, remains the biggest single determinant for trade flows in the world. You know, there's a reason why we, we trade more with Little Island than we do with some of the great uh, economic superpowers in Asia. There's a reason why Mexico and Canada trade, and will always trade more with America than we do, because they're right next door to each other. And, and the problem is these Brexiteers think you can stop geography. You can't stop. We are tectonically, geologically condemned to be in Europe. And, and, and the fact that they think otherwise, uh, it really distresses me because it, 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 there's just no evidence for it. In fact, all the evidence, I think I'm right in saying 
that there's been some quite authoritative academic work which suggests that, roughly speaking, for every mile of distance that you double between two economies, you, roughly speaking, halve the amount of trade between them. And, and that's the problem. You, there, is, there, is, there isn't this sort of panacea on the other side of the world. And all we need. And also, by the way, just technically, as I say this as a, a bit of a sort of trade dweeb, having worked as a, as a, as a sort of minor, minor... You weren't asked, would you come back to Dexy? Eh? You weren't asked to come back to Dexiu and help no, out. No, 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 I wasn't. No, no, Liam Fox <laughs> is not asked. To, no, no. Um, no, no, but the point I was going to make, when I worked in the EU many, many years ago, I worked as a, as a small cog in the wider kind of machine negotiating EU trade agreements. The thing you have to remember is if you are a great, if you're India or Brazil or uh, China or whatever, your trade relationship with the United Kingdom is entirely driven by what they think your relationship is with these huge European markets. Sure. So from their point of view, they're not going to... I mean, I, I make a safe prediction. The, 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 the British government now will be making desperate covert attempts to come up with some kind of threadbare trade deal with the Americans, which they hope to be able to unveil in some press release and some meeting and some photo opportunity the day after Brexit has finally come to a reality. It, it probably will have almost nothing in it. Maybe a few little tariffs you can reduce, maybe a little bit of extra stuff you can do on equivalents in services and so on. But it actually won't, it, it really can't, just for various technical reasons, it can't just reinvent trade completely. Um, and then, of course, the Daily Mail will say, this is an absolute, this shows that our cousins, our English-speaking cousins on the other side of the Atlantic uh, have shown who our true friends are, rather than these ghastly foreigners on the other side of the channel. Um, but it'll be all smoke and mirrors. It'll, it'll be some symbolic trade uh, um, agreement. And no one should imagine that that will be sufficient to compensate or to outweigh the very, very great losses that we are likely to incur if we carry on on the present trajectory, which is well, not just to leave the EU, but also to leave the customs union and the single market. So the book, the book title, yes. How to <laughs> Stop Brexit, I presume you have a sort of an elevator pitch version of How to Stop Brexit. Yes. Do you want to tell us? <laughs> Thank you for asking. Um, uh, you wondered if I ever yes. would, I presume. No, no, no. It, it's, um, it's very simple. I just, I, just, I, will, uh, I just think we need, to, we need to pressure, cajole and urge my erstwhile colleagues in Parliament to do their job. Next year, they will be presented by Theresa May and David Davis with whatever threadbare deal they've been able to cobble together with Michel Barnier and the other EU 27 countries. And all I'm advocating in my book is at that point, MPs should do their democratic duty, which is to compare the promises made to their constituents by the Brexiteers, 350 million quid a week for uh, the NHS, a VAT cuts, smaller class sizes, a panacea of new trade deals, etc., etc. They need to compare that with what their constituents are actually getting in the deal. And I make a safe prediction that not only many of those commitments won't be met, I don't think any of them will have been met. None of them. At that point, surely it is just a matter of democratic principle that if the government of the day has failed to get, deliver any of the commitments that have been, and any of the legitimate expectations that have been raised um, at the time of the referendum, uh, then MPs should say, it's not a question of a choice, should say, I'm sorry, we're going to withhold our consent for that. Now, that would then, of course, trigger a period of turbulence, political turbulence, no doubt, and so on and so forth. But I can't see any way in which we can back out of the cul-de-sac we are in, which doesn't start 
with MPs basically saying, up with this, we will not put. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I think good old-fashioned pressure on MPs over the next year is really, really essential. I always try to ask um, speakers at conferences and so on if they can suggest one thing that they'd like the audience to do. So you've actually done that without me asking. That's something you want everyone here to do. I'm going to open this to questions. Um, people can ask questions online as well, people who are watching online, but also people here if you prefer to do it that way. But I'm happy to have hands up. Is there a roving mic or? Yes, there is. Um, do you want to take this gentleman here? I'm Simon Maxwell. I used to work here, and I also chair the European Think Tanks group. And I'm on your side, except I think I have a quicker way to get to avoiding Brexit than you, but we'll come back to that maybe later. This is a development institute. One of the things we say in development institute is that the agenda's changing with much more emphasis on global problems and global collective goods, climate change, conflict, drugs, terror, uh, of course, migration. But what we also say is that ministers make choices at the margins between whether to do something through the UN or the EU or the Council of Europe or the Commonwealth. And the question that we always struggle with in our European conversation is, what's the comparative of Europe on these big issues and what should Europe not try to do on these big issues and leave to others? Gosh. What's the comparative advantage? I mean, why Europe and not the UN? Or why yeah, so Europe and not the Commonwealth on climate change and globalisation and all the other things you talked about at the beginning? Um, I find that very difficult to answer. You'll be able to answer it better than I do. I guess it's partly to do with efficacy. Where is the European Union proving to be effective compared to others? If other, if other agglomerations are much more effective than the European Union, then... We shouldn't allow European amour propre to sort of stand in the way of either supporting those efforts or, or, or joining in with them. Um, um, but clearly the European Union has sort of both scale and clout and money and teeth in a way that, for instance, the Commonwealth does not. I mean, it's just a much, much richer, more sophisticated or muscular form of governance. Uh, it is able to uh, uh, marshal money and deploy political will in a way that um, the Commonwealth certainly can't. As far as the UN and the UN agencies are concerned, I'm just, I really, I'll sort of defer, you know, defer, defer to you. Uh, my memory of this is that there are some issues where, where everybody recognizes the UN is taking a particular lead um, and in a sense, the EU is just like the US. It's just providing checks. And, and in other areas, that's, that's not the case. My, my, by the way, this is slightly adjacent to your, to your question, but hopefully related to it. I think my worry, amongst many others, is that um, uh, it, it, as the United Kingdom pulls out of the European Union, um, which is that assuming, as I think we should, certainly you know, for the foreseeable future, we retain the 0.7% commitment. The, 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 the temptation for British governments is going to be just to um, use that 0.7% commitment in an ever more incoherent way. I mean, the one thing about the EU, it's frustrating, it's slow, it's a convoy of 28 countries, you have to find consensus, there are internal rivalries, there's the European Commission, there's the tug of war between one institution and the next and so on. But it it tries to organise itself in a coherent way. In other words, that development aid is spent in a way that is consistent with its wider strategic, economic and political priorities. I worked 
for two years uh, from 1994 to 1996. Um, just to give you a little example, I, I managed EU technical assistance projects in um, Central Asia and the Caucasus um, uh, in pursuit or aligned to the then, I'm assuming it still exists now, the then uh, strategic EU objective of opening a sort of trade passageway across the Caspian Sea, around the Black Sea, but from Central Asia to, to, to Europe. Um, and of course the problem is the UK will be so desperate to try and sort of find friends, develop new bilateral relationships, enter new trade agreements, that the, 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 uh, the, 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 the 0.7 pot will just be used as a sort of, as a sort of, like a bowl of sweets to kind of hand out randomly to whichever passing ally or friend we think, you know, could do with a bit of extra love. And that, that really, that, you know, that worries me because it means that, that the coherence by which development aid is, is, is uh, spent, either through the EU or through these other multilateral organisations, is lost altogether. So you're not worried about it actually, and not, not very worried about it actually being ended, the commitment? Oh yeah, sure. No, no. I mean, look. There's a. There's a I mean, there's, there's first, a campaign first, actually, to try and stop it. Sorry. There's a campaign to try and end it. Oh yeah, yeah. No, listen. I mean, I, 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 I know you'll be aware of this here, but um, do not, under any any circumstances, be under any illusions about how unpopular this is. I mean, I, 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 I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say it. the thousands of radio phone-ins I've done over the last decade or more, the thousands of of doors I've knocked on in Southwest Sheffield and elsewhere. I would put this up very close to the kind of top three of the most unpopular things that the, that the public uh, th uh, throw, throw at politicians like me, for very good reasons. It, it, you, well, you know the argument. It's, it's such an emotionally resonant argument. You know, my care home's being closed. My child's having cuts to the local primary school. The NHS is losing beds. Uh, the bus fare's just gone up. And you want to spend the money instead on the other side of the planet? What on earth are you doing? Charity starts at home. I mean, so what do you say to people who say this? Well, you, you, make, you make the argument that institutes like the ODI, it's your bread and butter. You make the argument that it's not only morally or ethically the right thing to do to try and seek to help those who are less fortunate than ourselves, but there's a, that there's enlightened self-interest in doing so as well. Um, but it's a very, very tough argument to make because, it, boy, it doesn't. that's a highfalutin argument compared to hang on a minute, they haven't even been able to fill in the pothole down at the end of my road because the council says it doesn't have enough money. Mm -hmm. So, you know, do not underestimate... Uh, I mean, I remember when uh, in coalition, you, I'm sure some of you remember this, uh, it was a commitment of, the, of both coalition parties to enshrine the 0.7% commitment in law. And we included it in the coalition agreement. And then in 2000... And, I can't remember what it was now, 2013, uh, David Cameron suddenly insisted that it should be scrapped from the Queen's speech because the Mail and the Express and the, you know, the backbenchers were, were, going, were going, you know, loopy about it. Um, and then we used Mike Moore's uh, private member's bill as a way of forcing the Conservatives, so embarrassing, I mean, I literally just had to embarrass David Cameron, so we now have this vote in the House of Commons because Mike Moore, a Liberal Democrat MP, has chosen this as his, uh, you know, his, his bill, his private member's bill, you cannot, you, know, you have to vote for this because it's in line with your manifesto, the coalition agreement, and so on. In other words, we had to use every trick in the book to just get them to do what they had in their manifesto and the coalition agreement, agreement, uh, agreement agreed to do. So, um, you know, it, it, but I mean, I, you know, do not 
Yeah. It, it, is, it is very... I mean, I don't know what the polling shows. I suspect the polling shows it's very unpopular. It well, I mean, it is cited as a reason for Brexit because people conflate the 0.7% of GDP with the famous oh, 350 yeah, yeah, million yeah. a week, you know? Um, so, sort of circling back to the first thing I asked you, it strikes me as possibly a slight, um, uh, you know, devil's argument here is it was overambitious. If, if it's that unpopular oh, in a democracy, if it's that unpopular in democracy, it's part of what makes people think that the elite aren't listening. You can make a good argument, yes, but yeah. you're having to make an argument. They're saying to you, I want more spent on my schools, and you're saying, yeah, yeah. You know, but there's this fancy argument. Were yeah. you too ambitious? No, well, I, I don't have an easy an answer to that because um, there is no doubt, candidly, that sometimes to do what, you know, what is right isn't always consistent with what is popular. Yeah, and, Boy, this, do I and know this is that. a democracy, I mean, um, you know. Uh, yeah, no, no, no. And, 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 but, but that's, that's, that's why, that is what politics and leadership is about. You can't, leadership is not about followership, in my view. You can't just simply, you know, you can't simply just chase whatever is, is the latest mood. It, it, you, ha you have to try and, you have to try and be guided by certain lodestars, but you're right. The art of politics is to make sure that you are leading as well as following, but that you understand when you need to kind of trim, trim or when you need to yeah. follow. No, no, and there's a, I mean, look, I'll give you another good example. Um, uh, we introduced in the coalition government um, something which I judged at the time was absolutely the right thing to do and for which there was a great public demand, and that was to enshrine something which was called the triple lock guarantee mm. on the increase of the state pension. And I won't bore you with the details, but you'll remember Margaret Thatcher had broken the earnings link, so the value of the state pension had declined, declined, declined for years and years and years and years and years and years. Uh, and pensioner poverty had exploded and so on. And so we said, Steve Webb, uh, a colleague of mine, came up with the idea that we would enshrine uh, in the rules uh, an increase such that the state pension would go up by 2.5% inflation or earnings or whichever was highest. Mm -hmm. Now... That kind of makes sense, particularly if you're living in a world of normal inflation or relatively high inflation. And normal earnings increase and as normal well. Yeah. It makes absolutely no sense over time, when, particularly when you've, when you've closed the gap with other, uh, with other uh, um, benefits received by other generations through the welfare system. So I think, the, you know, I think the triple lock should be, if not ended, and it certainly should be amended now. Maybe it shouldn't be 2.5%. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe it should be a, a, a double lock not, rather than a triple lock. And there are all sorts of variants you can do to make sure it's both affordable, but also that it's not intergenerationally as unfair as it now risks becoming. That's a classic example of something which is actually the right thing to do at the time. I think it probably wasn't because it was the sort of thing that you could never reverse. Well, maybe. Okay. Yeah. Well, you're being too <laughs> rational. That's the problem. You're being too rational. Um, yeah. But anyway, that's but just it's another, popular, yeah. it's another example of... Um, you know, we're doing what's something that is right and popular can eventually become still very popular because, of course, it's popular amongst older voters, um, uh, but, but not as right as it once was. Do I have any other questions in the room? I do. This lady here. Yeah, just behind you with the mic. Yeah. Hi. Thank you so much, Nick, for your comments. I'm, I'm Alina Rochamanokal from the Overseas Development Institute in the Politics and Governance Programme. Um, this conversation has made me think of this cartoon, I don't know if you have seen it, in the New Yorker about passengers in the plane saying that they feel that the pilot is not listening to them, yeah. that they're being alienated from the process of flying the plane and what they should do about it. Um, and I think it's really important to keep in mind that there, there is a difference between representative democracy and plebiscitarian democracy, and you, the UK is meant to be 
the former rather than the latter. But to the point you were making mm. earlier about what we can do uh, to exert pressure and keep the debate going, I'm wondering how MPs read the results of the elections in June, because really it was a slap in the face mm. uh, to what we thought was going to happen, all of us collectively, mm. um, and perhaps really sent as strong a signal as we could have had about the fact that people were not entirely satisfied with the, the, the route that politics was taking and the direction that Brexit in particular was taking. And yet, um, it seems, again, that MPs are not listening. So what is it that will make them listen? Uh, listen? Uh, if it's, it's not an electoral result like the one we had before, and what can we do going forward? So, so the, the problem with, with your particular interpretation of the election result, uh, and of course the Brexiteers have been very quick to point this out, was that the very dramatic increase in the vote for Jeremy Corbyn, uh, people in their hearts might have thought they were voting against Brexit, but of course... The Brexiteers have said, oh, well, look, look at the Labour Party manifesto. It, it's, it's committed to Brexit. Jeremy Corbyn has voted against every act of European integration in the 30 years he's been in Parliament. He's a well-renowned Eurosceptic. So it merely confirmed, I mean, I'm, I'm just being, this, this, is the way that, this is the way that your interpretation is turned on its head. Um, and it is complex because, uh, you know, uh, there is a lot of evidence that um, a lot of people voted particularly for the Labour Party, because they were unhappy with the direction of Brexit under the Conservatives. But it is equally incontrovertible that in Jeremy Corbyn, they have a leader who, just look at his history, you know, he's voted against Maastricht, against Amsterdam, against Lisbon, against our entry in the European community in the first place. He's a classic 1970s left-wing Eurosceptic. So, so we, in a sense, you're seeking to make a distinction between what the leadership of the Labour Party said and indeed what its manifesto said and the motives of people. But the problem is... You know, making claims and counterclaims about the motives of people is quite a perilous thing to do. You ask what more can be done. Oh, a lot more can be done now. I mean, you'll have to buy my book and read it. Um, <laughs> it's for sale and, outside and, and, afterwards. And, and, and it would make an excellent Christmas gift for all your neighbours and friends as well. Um, but but um, having been on the receiving end uh, uh, of, uh, of, of sort of representations, particularly at constituency level, as a constituency MP for, for over a decade here, I, I, it might sound quaint and old-fashioned, and in many ways it is quaint and old-fashioned, but just good old-fashioned face-to-face um, pressure on MPs in their constituencies and in their constituency surgeries is, the, is one of the most important tried and trusted ways of applying pressure to MPs in British... MPs will respond not to mass postcard campaigns or emails from people elsewhere whining about this, that, other. MPs respond if they think that opinion is shifting in their own neck of the woods, in their own constituencies. So what I, in effect, um, advocate in my book is mass infiltration of the Labour and the Conservative parties by Remain voters. It's happened before. Moment. What? No, no. <laughs> yeah. Please don't stop that. But, 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 my, but, my, but my point to you is just an arithmetical one. I'd love to think that the Liberal, Dem Liberal Democrats are going to run Parliament this time next year. They're not. If you really want to change the political weather, somehow we have to persuade scores of Labour and Conservative MPs who privately, privately think Brexit is a very bad idea, who themselves have voted for Remain but for some reason don't think they have the permission or the latitude from their own constituents to do what they know is right. And so 
I'm just being very pragmatic. You have to give them the permission, the courage, the courage of their convictions to do what is right next year. And a year is a long time in politics. I'm completely convinced it can be done. I'm going to take two questions now together. I think there's a gentleman who's had his hand up here for a while and this lady here in the third row as well. Uh, it wasn't you, I'm afraid. It was just <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> and if there's another mic, it can come to this lady here and then we'll just take both questions and then Nick can... Yeah. Andrew Ross from Global Garden. You started your remarks laying the blame squarely on the financial market crash as being the, the fundamental of the, the disputatious uh, politics we're in now. However, the success of the climate change conference in Paris was arguably due to the world's financial market, the $100 trillion global bond market, and the insurers of the world committing to invest at least a trillion dollars a year in green bonds to enable sustainable economic development. They simply can't find the projects that are at scale with creditworthy issuers, with a little bit of ROI, but they don't return on investment, but they don't really care about that. It's a massive opportunity to actually make friends with the money market and use these tidal forces to generate the politics. Which politician's going to grab hold of this money? So hold that thought and can we pass the microphone forward and I'll take another question here. Yeah, this lady here in the third row, just put your hand up and show them where you are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, my name is Alima Tudimonikeni and I'm an anti-FGM campaigner. Um, talk of the um, coalition party and Nick and Baroness Lynn Featherstone were instrumental in getting a lot of work around NFGM in my country, Sierra Leone, for example. And we saw the, the importance of aid from Britain going into the Ebola crisis in Sierra Leone, Liberia and Guinea. So um, for us as um, sort of the receiving end of aid, um, it has changed many lives and has made lives for women and girls in countries where I'm from um, sort of livable. Um, um, so my question is in terms of Brexit and what that would mean for inequality and justice, social justice around the world, um, where do you see that? So I've left you with two rather big questions to answer, I'm afraid. Sometimes um, things work out this way when you take a couple of questions yeah. together. Um, so on the, on the first... Um, uh, there has actually been in, in this country uh, a huge increase in um, I, I know it's not it's, it's, I'll broaden it out to the wider global issue but there has been a huge um, influx and increase in investment in green and renewable energy over the last particularly over the last seven years um, and, and in part uh, I would like to suggest that was in part because of some very important policy and regulatory changes that um, that we introduced at government level, the creation of the world's first green investment bank, stupidly now sold off by this government, um, the electricity market reform, which changed the financial incentives for uh, investment in, uh, in renewable energies, uh, the, all this complex contracts for difference, uh, change in the tariff structure and so on. Um, and, and there's been, I think, the, the biggest increase now in 
investment in, in uh, renewable energies in this country, in, in, certainly, in, I think, in, 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 a, in a generation or so. The, 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 the question you ask is which politician is going to grab hold of this? Um, it's a bit like the 0.7%. Um, People in, this, in a room like this intuitively think it's the right thing to do. But to persuade the public that it's a popular thing to do is a lot more difficult than your question implies. Because one of the ways in which uh, investment in green and renewable energies is incentivized is that you give, I mean, you say they don't want a ROI, a return on investment. My experience is they do. And they certainly need some kind of predictability about the kind of pricing in the energy market going forward. So what then happens is regulators and governments intervene to say, in effect, to, 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 to simplify a lot of technocratic stuff, you guarantee a price going forward. But what happens then is, as has happened recently, the oil price goes down, mm. and everyone says, this is ridiculous. Why are you giving a guaranteed energy price to these investors when oil price has just gone down? You're keeping prices artificially inflated. And what you will find if you read The Express, The Telegraph, The Mail, The Sun, and so on, the thing after the 0.7% that is probably the most popular campaign these days is to stop so-called green crap because they claim that, that is the reason why energy prices, the, you know, the money you pay every week and every month on your electricity and gas prices are artificially high. Now, I think you and I would agree that there's a very, very good countervailing argument against that, which is if you have stability over pr of prices over a long period of time, actually over time, by flattening out the wild gyrations of carbon, uh, hydrocarbon fuel prices, you actually save people a lot of money. But it's a really difficult sell politically to say that somehow maybe prices are marginally higher now than they would be if you followed the, the downward gyrations of current uh, gas and oil prices. So I'm, it's, sorry, it's a rather long, lengthy reply. It's merely just simply to indicate that it's not quite as straightforward in the rather crude uh, tug of war of politics uh, to to um, make the case for those pretty aggressive interventions in the energy market, which make those very significant um, investments possible. But it needs to be done, and again, it's a bit like the 0.7%. It needs to be done by people explaining the issue and exercising some leadership. Um, I'm very glad that you mentioned Lynn Featherstone, because you're quite right. I think Lynn Featherstone, which is not only a dear friend of mine, but I think she did an amazing job when she was a, a development minister in, in government. And one of the things she, she did both there, but prior to that in the Home Office champion, was, uh, uh, was um, you know, some real groundbreaking uh, measures against, um, uh, against FGM. And um, good luck to you in all your ongoing work on that. Uh, I don't have an easy answer to you about the link between Brexit and inequality elsewhere, other than to say that I think... Um, as I said earlier, I think there will be a, a capriciousness and a volatility and a lack of predictability and a lack of coherence creeping into the way in which the UK spends its development money in future if we proceed with this Brexit. Because I, I mean, obviously I may be wrong, I don't think I am, but there you go. Um, uh, I think Brexit is pointing the United Kingdom to a somewhat friendless uh, future. Uh, I think being unanchored from your own hemisphere is not a smart thing to be in the kind of globalized 21st century. <coughs> and so I think we'll have, I think as a country, we'll do a lot of sort of rather random ducking and weaving to try and make sense of the, the world in which we're suddenly a much more isolated um, 
component. And I think inevitably uh, our foreign aid budget will be used to kind of find new friends, consolidate new trade relationships. In other words, the coherence with which aid has been used in the past for some of the uh, purposes that you mentioned, I think will give way to short-term sort of short-term geopolitics. Nick, I have some very, very good news for you. Hashtag ODI Clegg is now trending on the oh. UK and Twitter. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so that's good. So you can go home and you can tell your wife that yes. you actually succeeded. Um, check whether hers trended when she was here, yeah. <laughs> yeah, possibly not. We can pretend it didn't anyway. Um, so two questions that have come in uh, from here. Uh, the first one, very nice question. Um, given the state that we're in, how can you engage and encourage bright young things to go into politics and policy? So some thoughts on that. And then the other one is a follow-on, actually, from the questions and the, the comments on the 0.7% of overseas development aid. Um, doesn't the SG, SDGs agenda help to drive that, help to keep a coherent, mm -hmm. and uh, the yeah. 2030 agenda, because that's a co-responsibility agenda? Yeah. So anyway, how do we get people to go into politics if they you know, have better things to be thinking about than tearing up 45 years plus of yeah. well, relationships? Um, I think it cuts both ways. I, I, think, the, I think the spectacle of... Uh, politics at the moment, the kind of what appears to be sort of catastrophic loss of strategic leadership in, 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 uh, it, it, certainly in British politics, not to mention the uh, appalling um, sight of these sexual scandals now uh, coming um, to light in Westminster. Um, I mean, on, on the one hand, that must be deeply, deeply off-putting to any young, idealistic, motivated person. But on the other hand, I suspect it'll also anger people so much and motivate people. So, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if the Brexit vote uh, becomes a sort of defining, galvanising moment for many younger people, just as the Iraq war was for a you know, previous generation or m other sort of seminal moments. Um, and I hope amongst that there'll be some folk who will feel that, you know, they want to, you know, they, they, they feel they're not being spoken for. Uh, by the current generation of politicians and want to do something about it. I mean, I would, when I'm asked by someone who says, oh, you know, I want to go into politics, what, I mean, I do generally advise that it's best for folk to first do something else with their lives before going to politics. I think one of the things that's gone wrong in politics is that there are too many people in it uh, who are exclusively dependent on politics for their own, their own material well-being, their own sense of self-respect, their own identity and so on. Often the best politicians are politicians who actually, at the end of the day, could leave it. The very unhealthy thing is when people are just so dependent on politics, for their, as I say, for their own sense of kind of identity almost, that it just becomes something for which they feel they can't live without. Usually the best politicians are those who are actually prepared to say, do you know what, if push comes to shove, I could do without this and I'm prepared. Because you, you have to take, particularly in difficult circumstances, I think you have to take quite big risks with your own reputation in politics sometimes to do the right thing. So that would be my advice on that and on the other, what was it? Oh, no, no, sorry, yes, I, I, I should have mentioned that in, in, in response to the earlier, uh, earlier uh, question, uh, not least because I uh, represented Britain at one of the, uh, one of the formative summits on the, uh, on the decision on the, on the SDGs themselves. You're quite right, the SDGs do uh, serve as a very important uh, tram line and, and perhaps even straitjacket preventing the United Kingdom from flying off in every, every direction. And, and it's one of the many reasons why, why we should be very, very supportive of them. So no, that's a, that, that's a good um, counterbalance. That's a good, counterbalance, a good constraint yes. on, on 
unilateralism, I guess. Yeah. Well, two very good questions there. Have I some more in the room? This lady here. Hi, Martha from the BI. Um, I was uh, taken by your reflections on how unpopular both aid and climate um, issues are to sell to the public. So let me ask you about migration, because you mentioned it as an area where we should not be following the populace. So how would you go about it, assuming that part of it is also to make a positive, realistic case for a sustainable solution in something which I can't think of anything that is likely to be less popular in the UK, and possibly in Europe, if you have some ideas? So I think there are a number of uh, aspects to this. Um, I mean, the first thing to say uh, um, is that uh, not always, and I'll come to the caveat in a minute, but quite often um, people who say that they are most motivated by uh, immigration or they're uneasy about immigration live in communities which are not always, but very often entirely unaffected by immigration. Uh, I mean, I'll give you a little anecdote. And by the way, this is not to say they're wrong, because perception, in, in a sense, is everything. And so you have, to, you have to deal with people's fears, but all I'm saying is that those fears are sometimes not, are not um, supported by lived experience. I, I remember, I'll never forget, as long as I live, many years ago, well before I became an MP, I think even before I was a, a, a Euro MP, I was helping out in a local by-election in Chesterfield, in, in southern Derbyshire. And I remember um, I had my rosette, you know, fluttering in the spring wind, and I went up to this uh, chap who uh, lived in a very neat bungalow, and he'd just finished mowing his lawn in front of his bungalow, and he was leaning, it sounds apocryphal, but it's true, he was leaning very proudly on his, on the, his front sort of fence. And I went up to him, and, and this was at the time, I'm not sure if any of you remember this, it was at the time when there was a great deal of controversy. It was daily slapped on the front page of the tabloids. It was the time, early on in Tony Blair's time in office, when there was huge controversy about the uh, dispersal of asylum seekers from the Kent ports to various parts of the country. And the Home Office, in true Home Office fashion, made a difficult situation spectacularly worse by contracting with some cowboy uh, property owners in some of the most deprived communities in the country and just plonked these poor asylum seekers dislocated them from their family, just plonked them in some of the most deprived communities in the country, who unsurprisingly reacted very badly to this. Anyway, I remember going up to this chap and saying, hello, you know, will you support the Lib Dems? And he went, no, no, I'm not going to. I said, oh, why not? Oh, because of all these asylum seekers. Now, at the time, I knew that there wasn't a single asylum seeker that had been, di had been dispersed at that time from uh, the Kent ports to that part of Derbyshire. So I remember saying to him, I said, Oh, right. Well, uh, sorry to hear that. Um, I'd just be interested to know, I mean, have you met some of these asylum seekers, maybe seen them in the supermarket or the GP surgery or the post office? And then he said something which has lived with me ever since. He said, no, I haven't seen any of them, but I know they're everywhere. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I don't mean that to denigrate him. I just mean that politically it's really, really tricky, this, because you're dealing with very visceral fears which aren't necessarily... You know, we don't necessarily... I mean, the, the European referendum is a classic example. The areas, the areas such as London, which, had the, which has the highest levels of immigration, I think now the London population, 36% of the local population is foreign-born, had whatever it was, over 60% voting for Remain. If you go to Redcar, Redcar, I think, had 65% voting or more for Brexit. And in a local opinion polls, people cited immigration as one of the major issues. And yet I think the... 
of the local population, those who are foreign or born elsewhere, are 2%. Now, there are some exceptions. Uh, if you go to some rural uh, fruit and vegetable picking parts of Lincolnshire and eastern England, there are some communities which have changed out of all recognition very, very quickly, principally but not exclusively because of uh, Baltic uh, uh, labour immigration into those parts of the economy. But, sorry, it's a very roundabout way of saying, is that so, so you have to... You have to um, uh, you have to um, tackle this in a way which tries to unpack the difference between people's fears and, and I think, actually confront people sometimes as per that conversation with that voter. I'm not, by the way, saying I've remotely converted him. Because actually quite a lot of people will say they worry about immigration in general, but say that they're very content with the way things are running in their local community. And I think that's an area where politicians can act uh, more imaginatively and with greater leadership locally, rather than simply fostering that kind of cycle of fear without challenging it with local facts. That's the first, first thing to say, uh, say. Secondly, it is a totally legitimate expectation in a mature democracy that the government of the day has some sovereignty, some control, to use that overworn phrase, over its borders. As I said earlier, there's a debate about whether it's your own borders or whether it's shared borders with other countries. But you cannot expect in a mature democracy that you just say, well, we have no idea who's coming in and who's coming out. You know, we, we, we don't know and we don't care. That's, that's nonsense. Of course, you can't expect people to endorse that and they shouldn't endorse that. So the second rather mundane observation is you just have to be competent in how you administer borders, how you administer people coming in and out of a space or coming in and out of a continent, coming in and out of a country. It is impossible to exaggerate how much damage it does to public confidence in the competence of their governments when they saw that terrible spectacle on their television screens every night in 2015 uh, for month after month and month after month of streams of poor, poor people uh, perishing in the Mediterranean, coming into Europe and, and Europe reacting with a sort of beggar thy neighbour, you know, no, it's their fault, their fault, you know, barbed wires going up, fences going up, trains being stopped, refugee camps springing up. I mean, it was an unforgivably incompetent way of dealing with something that people have a legitimate expectation. And in Britain, it is just ridiculous that uh, um, in, in Britain, we basically have no idea how many people are, are living here in effect illegally, in a legal vacuum, because they've overstayed their visa. And the reason why we don't know is because previous governments scrapped something called exit checks, so that you, of course, you show your passport with your visa when you come into the country, but the requirement to show your passport and show your visa was scrapped. It's now being reintroduced. So just basic competence. I mean, it, it, it really, and of course, as you know, famously in this country, the predictions made back in 2004 about the number of folk who would come to this country from Central and Eastern Europe, when Tony Blair's government liberalised the British labour market, when other major European economies did not, that did huge damage to public confidence. So, you know, you, there's no way around it. You just need to show a certain level of, 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 of competence. And then third and finally, I mean, I just think you need... To, I just think we just need to be much, much more self-confident in arguing about how immigration enriches our country enriches our country in all senses of the word, obviously culturally, but also literally. I mean, we, we, we are clearly going to now suffer as a country economically. Our NHS is going to suffer. Our public services are going to suffer. So the argument can be made. But that the problem at the moment is it's not being made 
at all. And it's this combination of um, sort of uh, um, generalized fear, mismanagement and incompetence with a failure of both politicians, the business community and people in public services of simply making the case for it. I think it can be done. I think the story of, um, of your, your non-Lib Dem voter who makes it clear he's really, really never going to vote for you no matter what you say and still you have to engage him reminds us all that as a politician you have developed, if you didn't have it already, a sort of bulletproof skin. And you must have a way of getting up in the morning and keeping going when things are falling apart about you, as the book title suggests, with the sort of make Britain great again. How do you stay cheerful? How, what, where, yeah, yeah, where do you find where do you find the opportunities and the sources of hope in this absolute mess that we're seeing around us at the moment? Tell me some things to be cheerful about. <laughs> Help me, please. <laughs> um, well, God, this is such a naff thing to say, uh, and uh, uh, I famously blotted my copybook um, with younger voters uh, over uh, university fees. But notwithstanding that, I'm really, really optimistic about what younger people want. They don't want this future. They didn't vote for this future. Over 70% over of 18 to 24 year old voters said they want something else. And that gives me great optimism. Great optimism. You know, they to get what they wanted. Well, I don't think you. I don't think you can keep. I don't think you can keep a whole generation down. I don't think you can in a mature democracy just airbrush out of the equation the hopes and the dreams and aspirations of millions of voters who have the future in their hands. Eventually, eventually that will come out. Okay, you know, eventually Paul Dacre won't be editor of the Daily Mail. <laughs> uh, these awful, awful things do pass. Um, I, so I just, I just, you know, if if younger voters espoused angry, illiberal, uh, aggressive views en masse, then I would get pretty down. Um, I've got young, you know, my, my, I've got, my children are smaller, they're 15, 13, eight, you know, eight. But even, even my two teenagers, I, I'm just sort of massively uplifted by the, uh, you know, by how they and their friends kind of talk about the world. And I think they're far, far more sophisticated and, and, and uplifting in their view of the world than I was as a snotty-nosed teenager. Uh, um, so no, I'm, I'm optimistic in that way. I, um, and, I, and I do think, actually, in, in many respects, um, what you're seeing, uh, particularly in, in the Brexit vote, is a sort of sting in the tail mm. for an, an old order that is actually on its way out anyway. So... so Sorry, and I'm now going to be, be acute. I'm not being ages. I'm not saying older voters are all ghastly. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that, that the future is shaped by those who will inhabit it. And just, that's life. It'll be inhabited by the young. And the young, it seems to me, have, on the whole, a really, really good set of values. They've got a lot of problems, a lot of anxieties, but they've got a really good set of values. So that makes me, um, that makes me optimistic. And also, I just, you know, um, having said I'm not seeking to cast aspersions on older voters, which I'm not, I do cast aspersions, and I'm very critical of what is basically now a cabal of old men who, it seems to me, basically run this country. You've got Paul Dacre, this ghastly man who runs the Daily Mail, I've told you before, Rupert Murdoch, the Barclay brothers, and a bunch of older, almost all exclusively male donors who for years and years and years have been shoveling vast amounts of money into the hands of UKIP and the Conservative Party and anti-European think tanks and pressure groups and so on. People like Aaron Banks, who are now quite rightly being investigated by the Electoral Commission for doing so, it is alleged, I should say, in a dodgy way. 
Um, you know, who are these old men? Why, who, how dare they think that they can make us all dance to their tune? Many of them don't even live in this country or pay taxes in this country. It infuriates me that they think arrogantly that they can just mess everything else up and just walk away as if it's, you know, of, of no consequence. So I kind of think as long as people are brave and, and will say stuff as it is, and as long as the young voters who flocked, to my mind, a little eccentrically, but nonetheless did flock to, to, to you know, Lord Jeremy Corbyn in Glastonbury, as long as, they keep their, as long as they keep their passion and as long as they keep their voice, you know, it's a really, really important thing that young voters did turn out in my, I mean I wish they'd voted for the Lib Dems but they turn but the much more important thing in the sweep of history is that they found their voice they 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 didn't stay at home and if that stays the if that remains the case then I'm very optimistic because they'll win through of course they'll win through they have to you've actually made me feel a lot better I think you've probably made everyone in the audience feel a lot better um, I don't want to take another question because that was such a great place to stop I just want to say thank you very very much for a very broad ranging conversation and actually an uplifting finish to it as well so we'll all thank Nick but also there's a reception afterwards and you can buy that book <laughs> thank you very very much Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes. Music